Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Welcome to Newsweek's Foreign Service. I'm Josh Lowe. And I'm Mirren Gitter. And each week, we look at the big stories from the US and what they mean for the rest of the world. This week, here in our London office, we're looking at money in politics and the rules that govern election spending. Josh, that sounds a little bit boring. It's not boring. Uh, The reason it's not boring, some of the rules might be complicated, they might be a little bit obscure, uh, but fundamentally this is about what the public see as being fair and unfair, how money gets into politics and how we keep out too much undue influence on it. Right. And I think, you know, looking at the US, we can see that a lot of voters don't really want corporate money in politics. Bernie Sanders's campaign, Trump's campaign, they attracted a lot of people because both those um, candidates said, we're not going to be taking big donations. But as we've seen, Trump's realised, actually, he does need to spend some money. And I think we've got a clip of his brand new ad, which I believe they first started being played on August 19th. Yeah, yeah. In Hillary Clinton's America, the system stays rigged against Americans. Syrian refugees flood in. Illegal immigrants convicted of committing crimes get to stay, collecting Social Security benefits, skipping the line. Our border open. It's more of the same, but worse. Quite Donald Trump on the one hand, but in some ways not quite Donald Trump. It's quite a sort of traditional, uh, you know, American election ad, isn't it? Big slogan. And it's quite telling that a candidate who came into the election saying he was sort of did politics a bit differently is now just having to turn to this very sort of big spending, big advertising model. And I guess that's partly because of the system in the US, where obviously you've got restrictions on individual donors. You don't have restrictions on how much you can spend. So candidates get caught up in this arms race, basically. Exactly. And we have the the opposite here. So we don't have a limit on donations, but we have a limit on spending. And I think that's why that Donald Trump advert, I mean, it's so dramatic as a UK voter to have to listen to. We just don't have that sort of mass TV advertising, which I think, you know, a lot of UK voters are glad of. But then a lot of UK voters worry about who's giving the donations. Because if you think about it, one very rich person could give all the money to, say, the Conservative Party. And then what happens? Presumably, they've then bought the party. Look, it sounds like I may have convinced you that this isn't a boring topic. I think you um, have. Because it really is just about, uh, firstly, it's about how our politics is done, how our politicians communicate, who influences them. And it's not just a fantasy discussion. There are different systems around the world. And there's the question of public money in politics, which I'd like to get on to. Absolutely. And Josh, I think that's enough from us. Let's bring in our guests. So joining us, we have Katie Ghosh, the chief executive of the Electoral Reform Society, which campaigns for a better democracy here in the UK. Also with us is Mark Bergman, an American corporate lawyer and a fundraiser for the Democrats over the last three election cycles. Welcome to you both. Thank you very much. Thank you. Perhaps we could begin at looking at U.S. elections. Um, and there's this sense, isn't there, that in the U.S., 
with all this money sloshing around, there's just this kind of absolute saturation at election time, isn't there? There's adverts everywhere. There's uh, sort of politicians on every billboard. There's people all over the streets. I mean, I just want to listen to one sort of funny clip, which maybe sums up the kind of that atmosphere, that sense of saturation. I'm tired of Barack Obama and Mitt Romney. That's why you're crying? Oh, it'll be over soon, Abby. Okay. The election will be over soon, okay? Okay. Possibly we might all be feeling a little bit like that at the moment, or just starting to. That was a girl during the 2012 cycle. What do we think? Do we think that politics... Is there too much money in U.S. politics? Let's start with that. When we talk about the U.S. elections, first you have the length of the election cycle. Um, Secondly, you have the amount of money that's in politics. And third, what it takes to win an election in the United States. And so getting the message out and in a positive way, in an influential way, is what drives so much of at least how the money is used in campaigns. We can come back to how that money is raised, but you've got the primary cycle. You then have the general election cycle, which goes on for months and months. And I know, um, having spent uh, 15 years here, people are amazed how long our elections go on. Uh, But the size of the country, the depth, the differences in the markets, all call for significant amounts on ads. Most people, by the way, in the United States will uh, will say there is too much money in politics. It has a corrosive, a corrupting effect. Um, and we have a few recent Supreme Court uh, decisions that, um, that has made it far easier uh, for, um, for that uh, system to spin out of control. And that's worth looking at, isn't it? Because, I mean, in 2012, I think the total amount spent in in the election cycle was $7 billion, which is just unfathomable over here. But then if you look at historic campaigns, so when uh, Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford went up against each other, that was all publicly funded. There was none of this private money. And it all, correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, but it, it does seem that it all got much, much worse after that 2010 ruling. Yes, it was a combination of a few things. One, it was, uh, and there was more than one ruling. So you had Citizens United, and then there were a few other uh, decisions that followed. But up until that point, corporations and labor unions uh, were not able to contribute. Individuals could up to a limit. Uh, Those limits uh, for corporations and labor unions are lifted. And there are two ways that that money can get into politics. So it could be the so-called super PACs, or it can be the uh, the 501c4 social welfare. Uh, the differences between the two are, one, the donors are disclosed. The other, the donors are not disclosed. But nonetheless, there, there are no limits. Now, the other thing that happened in 2008 was that Barack Obama declined to take public funding. And if you now fast forward today, no one is taking public funding. So you have limits on individuals, 2,700 in the primary, 2,700 in general election. You have various other limits uh, to contribute to the national parties. Uh, those limits, by the way, were increased. So if you add it all up, one can be paying over $300,000 in contributions as an individual. Though that's all disclosed. But then you have the, all the, the PAC money, the super PAC money, and then so-called dark money sloshing around. And that's what has given tremendous focus or focused attention on the need for campaign reform. We can get to that later in the, uh, in the program. But that is the state of play today. And that sense that it is a bit about how people feel, isn't it? Because when you 
are an ordinary voter, you sort of probably don't massively trust politicians to spend your money all that well. And, and this is obviously generalizing, but a lot of voters feel like that. I, I just think if I was an average American, I would just look up at kind of these glitzy ads everywhere and I'd just think, what, what are they blowing it all on? Why aren't they fixing my healthcare system? Or? But there's also an equally strong perception, I think, in the UK that there is a lot of money swishing around. And, and it's really striking the amount of money that gets spent in, on politics in the UK is small change compared with the numbers in the US. But as Mark rightly says, it's also about how the money is spent, what the money is spent on. What the US and the UK have in common is a winner-takes-all political system where the focus is to spend all your resources in the handful of marginal or competitive districts or, or seats. And it's the inequality in spending that really makes a difference. And some of the research we've done showed that in one campaign, there was 162% more money spent in the in, in the 50 most competitive seats over the 50 most safe seats. So it's where the money is spent. And I think until we get other reforms, electoral reforms and other kinds of reforms in, in the system and perhaps a change to political culture, along with reforms to campaign finance, we're not really going to see that breakthrough and the re-engagement of, of the public in politics that, that we'd love to see. If you look at it from the perspective of the American voter, you have these ads. People have been seeing these ads now for a number of months. That's also a reflection, by the way, of the amount of television saturation that you have in the United States compared to, to London, for example. The first thing you notice in the U.S., there are screens everywhere and there's breaking news everywhere. So you have ads. And it is phenomenal to jump into any of those markets and just see ad after ad. So people tire and there is a certain amount of fatigue. And by the way, from a strategic standpoint, that's also going to play into at what point do we start turning voters off. But the the strategy in terms of where the ads and Katie are absolutely right, U.S. elections are going to be won in a handful of very important local election precincts. First, we've got maybe 10 battleground states. Six of those will be important. Given the way the numbers work, Secretary Clinton probably needs any of the three largest states over the 240 electoral votes that she probably has uh, as blue states going into the election. So that's where the money is going to go. Similar picture in the UK. There are hundreds of thousands of voters at every single election in the UK who will not get one leaflet through the door, they won't get one visit from a candidate, they feel completely ignored, they will have had an experience never of casting a vote that will count. And then that's where money in politics is really kind of reflecting bigger issues and bigger challenges of how you run a modern democracy. And something about this system that you've just both been talking about, I mean, the, the idea that loads of money is spent in certain seats, that must surely affect political engagement in those seats. So if you're someone who's targeted all the time by all sorts of politicians, you probably feel a little bit more close to those politicians than someone who's largely ignored. But remember that the two parties are sending out emails on a daily basis. At the bottom says donate. And it could be $5, it could be $10. So from an engagement standpoint, um, as opposed to the leaflets, which cost money, it takes a person to go to, to and it costs money for the leaflet. You know, emails are going out across markets, and, and I don't have a real sense as to how that is, um, that is defined. But people are being asked to contribute regardless of where they may sit. When we did some research, some focus groups with voters a couple of years ago to find out how they felt about money in politics, 
they said, we want a level playing field. There are a lot of parties that we would like to support. And under the winner-takes-all system, it's quite hard for new entries to come through. But nonetheless, we have more parties supported by more people than before, more political diversity. And there was just a very simple message that came through that we just think whatever the total sum of money there is in politics, we would like there to be a more level playing field so that there's some there's, there's money there for more parties to have their voices heard and get their manifestos across at election time. Yes, but I suppose most parties do at the very least get a party political broadcast. I suppose the difference between those TV ads and what they have in in the US is that they're not shown very often. You don't have that saturation of TV adverts. And the other difference is they're just a lot kinder. And we've got a couple of clips that really illustrate that. He is a con artist. A phony. Donald Trump is the know-nothing candidate. Donald is a bully. This is an individual who mocked a disabled reporter. So that there is what you expect from the US, these attack ads. And uh, this is what we have in the UK. The bottom line is what values are we choosing? Because in the end, this choice we make really does matter. Labour. But it's important to say that, as with many things in life, we're very influenced by America and we do have American imports. There's been an explosion of online ads, Facebook advertising and the like, that the parties have started to adopt and were spending a lot of money on at the last parliamentary election. And that I think there's also been a rise in negativity. So those are two perhaps less welcome imports that we're seeing. But we, we really need to tackle that. And of course, online Advertising of any kind is much harder to regulate than our traditional broadcast media. So one of the things we need to to think about in the UK is online engagement can be fantastic and online advertising could be really good and it's going to be used increasingly by the parties. But how, again, do we ensure that level playing field and that voters are hearing from a real diversity of views? Remember, too, in the US, and I'd be interested in, in your perspective here in the UK, but in the US, the ads, the engagement, it's designed, it's focused on a variety of different things. The first is to get voters to register. The second is to get to the polling stations on time, on voting day, or to vote early if they are able to vote early, and then for them to vote the right way. So there's a tremendous amount of money that is directed at each one of those three things. And because our campaigns are as long as they are, and we tend in the U.S. to view our campaigns in three phases, so the period through the primaries up to the convention, the convention to the day before election day, and then that last day is the critical one. The amount of money that is that needs to be spent or the efforts that need to go into all of this, and given the size of the country, is significant. Here you have a far shorter campaign period, and I suspect that more is in terms of influencing people as opposed to just getting out the vote or registering to vote and then getting out the vote. Yes, that's that's a really interesting point. And I'm really glad you've raised the length of the campaign because that is crucial when it comes to how much money is spent. And we do have quite strict demarcations around the length of a formal campaign period and how much money can be spent. And just to give this a bit of perspective, I think it was around £40 million in total that was spent at a recent election campaign. That was 53 parties and a number of non-party campaigners at all. So that, that gives us a sense of perspective. But again, it's all about where the money is spent and what it's spent on. And one of the features of modern politics is that all of us, I think, still have a desire to have some face-to-face contact or some telephone 
telephone conversations. So that's quite old fashioned in a way, but it's what people want. But we've also got all the online, the vigorous online engagement as well that the parties are trying to do. And I think that the challenge probably for future elections is how you bridge the gap between online and offline so that you have the richest experience possibly for the voter. Let's not forget the politician because... Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The Eucalyptus Fiber Upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And, because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Being a politician today is really, really difficult. I mean, put aside all of the issues around the scrutiny and being in the public limelight, but also this grueling schedule of campaign appearances and fundraising appearances and having for candidates to have to ask for money is really difficult. And I think if everyone, given their druthers, had the opportunity to vote in the United States for realistic campaign reform, and this is an ongoing discussion, and Secretary Clinton is included among uh, her top priorities um, of three points in particular to try to rein in campaign finance spending and efforts. But politicians would be the first ones, if they could, to reduce the toll that all of this takes because it does take quite a bit out of them. And when we look at the UK, I mean, something about our system, obviously, it's in a way, it's the reverse. There's limits on spending, but there's, there aren't limits on donations. I mean, I was remembering um, a story from a couple of years ago, just before the election, when there was that Conservative Party fundraising gala, where you had all these ludicrous things that people were bidding for, things like shoe shopping with Theresa May and all of that kind of stuff. And that came out and it was covered and it didn't look particularly good. I mean, while, as we've said, there is less money in the UK, surely this fact that you have these big donors giving these huge amounts of money proportionally must make voters feel like there is a lot of influence going on behind the scenes. It, it absolutely does, and with good grounding, because the trend in recent years in the UK has been towards a smaller number of large donors rather than a good spread of individual donors. And that's where I think there would be strong public and political support for change. The problem is, although... 
I would say a majority of the public and politicians can see the case for and would like to see a new political financing settlement in the UK that was balanced, that had some limits on donations, some limits on spending, had a little pot of public money as well. The political will to actually make that settlement happen has been pretty much absent, really. So there have been cross-party talks, there have been initiatives, there have been hundreds of commissions and inquiries. The detail is done, but the political will to actually give up something for the greater good for a sustainable party funding settlement still seems a long way off. And it's interesting, even in the US, there are some who will benefit or who we think would benefit from limits. And then there's the flip side, that those that benefit or seem to benefit from the absence of limits, yet you look at this election and this election, as we were discussing earlier, is unprecedented in so many different ways. But if you look at Jeb Bush and the amount of money that was raised early on in the Republican primary race, and those people all fell by the wayside, and then you had Donald Trump, who of the three things that seemed to resonate with voters, at least according to certain focus groups, was that he could not be bought. He was self-financing his campaign. question then was, well, what does that mean for all of the, the large donors who've been writing checks in the past? I think what the US and the UK have in common is that there are these big corporate donors getting involved, whether that's through super PACs, as you've mentioned, or whether it's through big donors being able to donate as much as they want. And I think that's really where voters on both sides of the Atlantic get worried that there's dirty money basically coming into politics. Perhaps it's worth looking at a country like Germany, which has limits on both donations and spending. And is that sort of the model that we should move towards? Because German elections, they're very muted affairs. You know, they have limits on TV advertising, they have limits on the amount of money swishing around. Would that, do you think, engage voters more? I mean, every political culture is different. So you have to come up with a model and the mechanisms that's really going to work. But certainly the Electoral Reform Society advocates a sensible donations cap, a sensible spending cap to sort of bring the arms race down, bring the temperature down, if you like, and also a proper look at the public money that's already in the system, because there is some public money. You've mentioned the free television advertising. There is a small allocation of public money. And when we talked to voters about this, they had some great practical suggestions about a slightly different use of the public money. For example, couldn't every household have a booklet with all the candidates and the parties in it so they could compare and contrast at their leisure. And it's got to be more about culture as well than money in some ways, hasn't it? Because if you look at some countries that have limits on spending and donations, when I mean, you've got Greece, for example, which has historically not been a, a model of totally kind of corruption-free politics. Um, and in fact, lots of voters in Greece have huge issues with the way money is spent in politics. That's part of what Syriza, the left-wing government, their road to power a few years ago. So, it, well, I suppose, which way does this go around? It's a chicken and egg thing, isn't it? You know, how do we change the culture without changing the system? And you also have jurisdictions on the continent, other jurisdictions on the continent, where every few years you have scandals associated with the use of public funds, if you will, to fund campaigns properly or, or improperly. But I agree completely. It is a combination of culture and then the regulatory overlay with the willingness to change. And the, the one other factor that I would add, which is huge in the United States, is disclosure. Who is spending 
who is donating. And one of the issues around the, the, the fallout from Citizens United is that you have these 501c4 organizations, the social welfare, and as long as you're spending a majority of your money on something unrelated to politics. And remember, too, all of these PACs, that they are independent of the candidates, but that just means people wrap themselves in the pretzels to try to make sure that they are on the right side of the regulations and then combine that with perhaps not the most effective in terms of enforcement out of the FEC, but dark money, you have no disclosure. And so if you look at some of the proposed reforms, it is to make sure that whoever does contribute, at least over a specific amount, because in the United States today, if it's over 200, your name is out there. If it's under 200, it isn't. But in the, the dark money pools, there's no accountability. So I think there are various elements, and that may be a very U.S., centric approach to a problem. At least let us know who's writing those checks. And then if you could combine it with incentives, and there are the so-called donor matching, which would be public money, um, let's say $6 for every dollar raised, up to a, a maximum of $150, $175. So that would incentivize people to donate up to a certain amount. There's then the five or six times, or even they could go up to nine if the candidates are willing to, to restrict themselves further. So there are ways, even within a U.S. system, to come up with something that's a little more manageable. Interestingly, though, people don't talk in the U.S. about limiting the total amount spent. Mark, you just brought up that the role that public funding can have, that if I put in a dollar, the state or the county or whatever it was would match it with $6. We've sort of talked about public funding, but perhaps we can focus on it now. How much of a role should public funding play um, proportionate to, to private funding in an election? So at the Electoral Reform Society, we think it should be part of a healthy mix. We don't think there's a strong public appetite for public funding to be the major pot of money. We think there should be a really healthy mix. At the moment, the two UK-wide parties are funded either principally by the trade unions, the Labour Party, or by individual donors and businesses, the Conservative Party. So we see no reason why individuals or organisations shouldn't be able to legitimately help a political party, a political cause, but we do think public funding should be part of the mix. And I think it's probably worth thinking, what are the kinds of activities, as Mark was saying, that we want in a healthy, vigorous election campaign and democracy? You want to be helping people be out on the doorstep. Volunteers are actually the primary resource. We're really talking about the cash that goes around that kind of voluntary effort. So we think it should be part of a healthy mix. In the UK, we should do some assessment of where the money currently goes and then how it could be used in a more modern fashion. But it all sounds nice in the in the aggregate. But I'm just thinking as a journalist of the stories you could find of just, you know, this fat cat local activist being paid this much out of the public purse or, or that kind of thing. You know, you would just, the Daily Mail in the UK or some of the tabloids in the US, would they would find ways to twist this, wouldn't they? Do, do it would depend entirely on, on the rules and the regulations around it and also what it was being spent on. I think, I don't think anybody would have a problem with money being given to fund really good quality literature of an impartial fashion, you know, candidate booklets that went to every household, giving unlimited numbers, amounts of cash to pay for activists who were previously 
previously voluntary probably wouldn't go down so well. I think there is a real appetite in the in the US as well to go back to that historic model of public funding. And I just want to hear from um, Cenk Yuga. So he um, is a member of the Young Turks. Uh, he's also head of the Wolf Pack, which is trying to move away from, from corporate funding. And we've got a clip from him. I think it's so deep that we have, in effect, lost our democracy. It might sound rather harsh, but is it really harsh when 93% of the time in Congress, the person with more money wins the election? Now, what is not determinative is whether that person is a Republican or a Democrat. What is not determinative is whether they are a liberal or a conservative. What is not determinative is any of their ideas or ideology. What is most determinative is how much money they have. And I think what he's pointing out is that private funding excludes certain candidates, candidates who don't have great connections, who might be from blue collar or working class backgrounds. And at least if there is public funding, perhaps those people could have more of a platform. We shouldn't forget the role of the parties, though. Both the RNC and the DNC should be assisting the so-called up and down the ticket. So assisting the men and women running for the House of Representatives, men and women running for, for the Senate. Now, they make determinations early on, and they are likely to make determinations on the ability of the candidate to resonate, i.e. be able to raise money, and that is one way of measuring likelihood of success. You know, how does the message translate. Mark, can I um, raise the, the, the kind of million dollar question in a way, which is what is the evidence around the impact of money or differential spend in the US or the UK? Because some people will say, well, it's all very well to talk about the huge amounts of money sloshing around. But when you do have a winner takes all system, is it more about where the money is spent or where, where your vote counts? Is it really about the money? And that's quite a hard thing to work out, actually, the extent to which it's the actual spend that is really influencing electoral outcomes or whether there are other factors in play? It's a very good question. And there are plenty of people that, uh, that will be spending a lot of time on both the uh, the Democratic and Republican side trying to figure out the answers to those types of questions. But nonetheless, there is a feeling that those ads are very important, certainly as you get closer to the campaign, going back to what I was saying earlier about how the messages are received. And I think we're in a in an interesting period of transition because historically it was, in the United States at least, it was television. We've moved away from television, so it's now it's social media. So it's got to be one aspect of a, a larger picture, and we've already touched a bit on culture. And if, if a politician is spending, you know, one dollar in a, in a system of hideous corruption and, and violence, and then they're spending millions in a system where everyone's lovely and, and focuses on the issues... You know, we, we can slightly overlook some of this stuff, but nonetheless, uh, we want to bring it back. Let's let's try and conclude. What's the best system? What, regulating, restricting donations, restricting spending, restricting both, and what role should public money play? Let's let's have a go at answering. Well, certainly in the UK, we think the best system would be one where you regulate at both ends. So you are regulating the donations and you are regulating the spending limits. And for us, we have a high cap on spending at the moment that, that the parties don't actually reach. So we think you should bring that down and have limits on donations as well. We'd also like some rules that really encourage a political culture where giving a pound or two is meaningful and you see that it matters. And we want a refreshed role for public funding in the mix. We've already got some reasonably good regulations on transparency, but it is 
important to look at how transparency runs alongside the, the caps on donations and spending as well. Before I th- run through my prediction, I just want to highlight one point that you just made, Katie, which is the importance of the small, the very small donation, because for a lot of people, that donation is is for them significant in relative terms. And they need to make a determination as to whether they're going to donate it or spend it on something else. And I think we've seen, whether it was the first two cycles with Barack Obama, more recently with Bernie Sanders, which is $20.16, those donations do signify or do reflect a very positive aspect of engagement. And so how do we manage to to write the balance? I think in the United States, we're not going to see ultimately spending limits. What I would hope to see uh, is a reversal of Citizens United. So then the question is, what is it replaced with? And that's where I think having some sort of donor matching, which brings back into the fold public funding, will be very important. We both, the United States and the UK, we should have the moral high ground when it comes to elections and democracy. And so we need to be able to weed out some of these elements that make it very easy for outsiders to say, well, that's just as corrupt as name another country. It's just corruption in a different form. Well, there you have it. And regulators in the US and the UK, I hope, were listening to that and will be taking note. I'd like to thank both of you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much to our listeners. If you enjoyed this episode, you can catch us every Thursday on SoundCloud and on iTunes. If you can't wait until then, pick up a copy of Newsweek Europe or visit us at newsweek.com. Newsweek.